And as you're getting settled, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, which I I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6. That's where we find ourselves in our study of the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 6. So I hope you had a good week this past week, celebrating the 4th and returned with all your appendages and everything. So that's good to celebrate America and celebrate freedom as long as we come back intact. But like I said, we've made it to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to begin this chapter today. And as we begin, we're going to get a short reprieve from the back-and-forth battle that we saw throughout chapters 4 and 5 between the apostles and that council of religious leaders. So if you've been around, if you've been with us throughout this study, you're aware of what's been going on and how the apostles have been preaching Jesus and performing signs and wonders through the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, and, and Israel's leaders didn't like that, right? They weren't, they weren't fans of, of what the apostles were doing, especially the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, and every time they performed a miracle, it, it just kind of put that in their face. So, so they, they, you know, just continued to, to attack them. They detained them, they jailed them, they threatened them, they beat them, but what we've seen throughout this time is they could not stop them. They could, they could do a lot of things, but they couldn't stop them. And in spite of all the persecution they faced, the Bible says the apostles ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And what a great testimony that is. What a great challenge it should be for those of us, especially us today that don't face that physical persecution like we've seen in Acts so far. But I think as we all are well aware of, that, that, that doesn't certainly doesn't mean we face no spiritual attack. We absolutely do. Satan is always working against us. He's always attacking us spiritually. He never quits that. And so when one of his tactics quits working, he shifts and he just works another plan. We saw a glimpse of that at the beginning of chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, where Satan worked through them to try to bring sin into the church. So they were filled with Satan. We're going to see another shift in tactics today. And what what we're going to see today, it'll kind of round out the primary ways that that Satan attacks and tries to neutralize the effectiveness of a church. So, so, So far, through these first five chapters of the book of Acts, we've seen him work through persecution. That's been his primary method then. Um, We've also seen him work through corruption, you know, or sin with Ananias and Sapphira. And today we're going to see him work through division. We're going to see him work through division. And so that's kind of the trifecta of of spiritual attacks against the church. And and we need to be aware of it because we need to know how Satan works. We've we've talked about this before. We're not to be ignorant of him nor his devices. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says so. Paul says, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, and that word devices is descriptive of Satan's mind, how he thinks and how he tries to get us to think. We find it in 2 Corinthians 4.4 as well, this translated mind there. It says, in whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And we also see it in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I fear lest by any means as a serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. You see, that right there is Satan's goal. His goal is to blind 
and corrupt minds to the truth and the simplicity of God's word. Through his devices, through how he thinks and then how he acts. And according to Paul, we know what he does. We know how he thinks and we know how he works, or at least we can, because the Bible tells us. We get to see Satan in action throughout the Bible, including here in the book of Acts, including these early, against the early church that we've, been, that we've been looking at. And what we see, what we've seen so far in Acts, it sets a pattern for how he's going to work throughout the church age in which we currently reside. And again, it is primarily through persecution, through corruption, and through division or dissension. And his goal is to distract us from the mission, however he can. That's what he's always after. No matter what the spiritual attack is, specifically, he's trying to distract us from the mission. And so, therefore, he's always working to bring problems into our lives and problems into the church. But what we're going to learn today is that problems also present opportunities. It's not that we should necessarily desire problems. I certainly don't desire them personally. I don't desire them in my family. I don't desire them in this church. But problems do bring about opportunities. You see, if we never had problems, we would never know that God's a problem solver. We'd never know that. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. How to solve problems within the organization and structure of a church through the power of the problem solver. There are some principles that we're going to learn today. And these principles set a pattern for how we are to then counterattack the attacks of the devil, how we are to attack the problems we face within a church. And what we're going to learn, just as sort of a, a, a general summary, what we're going to learn is that the best solution to problems comes through people resources. That's who God uses. God uses people. Acts 6, what we're going to see this morning is where we see the establishment of the first deacons in the church. And, and now the word deacon, the English word deacon isn't used there. The, the Greek word is. But, but it's obvious what these guys are and, and the model for, for the New Testament. Paul goes on. Paul calls them deacons uh, in 1 Timothy. And so, you know, he, when, when he outlines the officers there in 1 Timothy 3, we'll be there, we'll be there later. But Paul calls them deacons, so we call them deacons. And we'll, we'll check out some of those comparisons and the qualifications. But with this establishment of deacons here in Acts chapter 6, what we see, and I, and, and I don't want you to miss this, because this is really important for the rest of the New Testament. This is important for what we do as a church and how we do it. Today's message is going to be, I mean, it's going to be preaching like normal, but, it, but, it's, but it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be very instructive, and it's... It's going to be very practical. I hope all of my messages are. But this is going to be very practical on the role of deacons and the role of pastors. And so we're going to look at this, this passage um, very, in a very specific lens, with a very specific lens. But here's what you need to understand. This is the first case in the book of Acts of ministry going beyond the 12 apostles. All right, so this is what we see. We've, so far in the, in the first five chapters, we've seen it's, it's the, the apostles doing the work. The apostles doing the signs and the miracles and the wonders. Okay, well, starting here in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see this expand out. And that's the model. All of the ministry can't come from this pulpit. It can't come from this person, certainly. It can't come from the five pastors that we have. 
has to come from all of us, and, and we're going to be talking through that today. So this is an, this is an important happening. This is a very important chapter um, in the New Testament. And we knew that it had to happen eventually because of the mission of Acts 1-8. They were to be witnesses of Jesus throughout the world. They were to be, in, and, the, and the wording is specific, they were to be in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost. And the apostles can't be in Jerusalem and unto the uttermost at the same time. So they had to train and deploy others for the work. And today we're going to begin to see that. We're going to see that begin to take shape. And it's interesting, at least to me, because when Satan, you know, is, is attacking and working and using, you know, one of his tactics to, to fight the church, and God uses people to expand the ministry because problems present opportunities. You know, I've shown you before how persecution led to the growth of the church and more ministry occurring. We'll see that again in, in more detail when we get to the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And today, God uses Satan's attempt at division to expand the ministry of the apostles. So it's a little bit of a new narrative, but it's the same back and forth of, of the good and evil that we've been talking about. The God moves and then Satan, Satan counter moves. So let's look at it together and see what God will teach us about problem solving in the church this morning. Acts chapter 6, we're going to study the first eight verses. So, so read along, follow along with me. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, And in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmurings of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. All right, well, let's pray, and let's see what God has for us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and, and we're, we're grateful to be here. We're grateful to, we celebrated the freedoms that we have in this country this week, and, and we're, we're certainly thankful for the freedom we have to do exactly what we're doing today, and the freedom we have to share the gospel. Lord, we pray that, that you keep those doors open uh, for us and, and that, Lord, we would continue to be faithful to the calling that you've given us. So I pray that you teach us this morning. We need to hear from you, and, and Lord, that's certainly my prayer. Um, I know that, that nobody here needs to hear from me, but we all, all of us, need to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you do just that. You speak to our hearts exactly what we need to hear individually, and then and that will apply corporately. Um, as a church. And I pray that everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that it is honoring and glorifying to you. I pray that you're just glorified throughout this service and through our, the fellowship we have with each other, through the worship, and as we, as we lift our voices and praise to you. And, and Lord, if, as we commit our lives to, to live according to your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we do that today. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as you can see, the, the as I mentioned, the running narrative that we've kind of seen through these last three chapters is changing. It's changed a little bit. The council of religious leaders, they're not found in, in the text that we just read. Now, they're going to come back next week, so they're not going to be gone for long. 
But for now, we're, we're back to dealing, uh, today at least, with just the apostles in the church. That doesn't mean everything is smooth. Because a problem pops up in verse 1. And it's no coincidence that a prob- problem arises immediately following the great spiritual victory at the end of chapter 5. You know, we've learned that by now, right? The, the, this continuing back and forth. But as a quick reminder, let me read you the ending of how chapter 5 ended. Acts 5, verses 41 and 42. And they departed from the presence of the council. This is the apostles. Rejoicing, after they had been beaten. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Everything is great. They're facing intense persecution. They had just been beaten, but they're focused on the right things. And then the very next verse, Acts 6.1, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. See, God was working, working in mighty ways. The number of disciples, it says, was multiplied. And, and I've told you, I told you last week, I've told you before that, you know, as things are progressing through the book of Acts, they're just being heightened at every step. It's being ramped up more and more. So the signs and the wonders were increased. We went from Acts chapter 3 with the lame man to then everybody that was coming to the apostles were being healed. The physical persecution was more severe. They went from being mocked to threatened to detained to jailed to beaten. So that was ramping up. And it's true, though, also on the positive side with the number of disciples. In Acts 2.47, it says the Lord added to the church, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In Acts 5.14, it says, and the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. So the Lord was continuing to add, but now it's multitudes. But now in Acts 6.1, it's, it's increased even more because there it says the Lord multiplied. This is the first time we see multiplication in the book of Acts. And multiplication is always the goal. And it's no coincidence that the first time we see multiplication is also the first time we're going to see the ministry being expanded. But, it, but it's no coincidence that all this is happening together and everything is, is ramping up. And you see, multiplication, that's always the goal. But listen, with multiplication, with more people, it comes problems. And that brings us to our first point that we're going to look at this morning related to problems in a church. There is a surety of problems. That's our first point, a surety of problems. One thing I know for sure with surety is if you bring a group of people together, especially a group as big as ours, over time, there will be issues. And the issue we see in Acts 6.1 is an issue we actually see all the time. It's murmuring. And murmuring literally means grumbling or speaking of someone, speaking of the Lord grudgingly, holding a grudge against someone, against the Lord, and so you speak against them. This is one of the things the children of Israel, they're known for, right, in the time that they spent in the wilderness. They're murmuring and they're complaining. And the problem with murmuring, according to Moses, is that when we do it, it's a sin against the Lord. Now, all sins are sins against the Lord. I think we know that. But this is a sin when you were murmuring about other believers, about other 
others in the church. That's a direct offense against the Lord. This is how Moses described it in Exodus 16.8. And Moses said, this shall be, when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat, in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So listen, there's something going on when you're murmuring, and you're talking against people, and you're talking against what's going on. There's something in you that is against the Lord. This is a serious thing. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2.14, to do all things. I want you to hear those two words. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. And we know that, and we hear that, and we read that, but we've never let a pesky little Bible verse get in our way before. <laughs> so why start now? Well, let me tell you why. It's because there is something more important than us and our precious feelings. And it's the mission. Because I want you to notice the colon at the end of Philippians 2.14. Do all things without murmurs and disputings. Colon. Now let's read verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You see, murmuring, when murmuring enters into an individual's life, and when murmuring enters into a church, our message gets buried. I want you to hear that. Our message gets buried because we're no longer blameless without rebuke. People can point to us and rightfully say, they're no different. Why should I listen to them? That's why unity amongst believers has been such a big emphasis in so far in Acts. Because they had a mission. And in those early stages of the church, it was so critical for them not to be distracted. The message could have died with them if they didn't approach this correctly. That's why we have read over and over they were of one accord. They had all things common. They were of one heart and one soul. This is something Jesus prayed for them about, and an answer to his prayer, and, and for us, by the way, as well. John 17, verses 20 and 21 says, Neither pray I for these alone, speaking of the apostles, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Everybody that follows, including us. Listen to verse 21, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And why? Why is, does Jesus desire this? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Because we have a mission. And the mission is more important than our feelings and our offenses. Jesus had already told them in John 13, 35, that by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if, as a two Letter, key word, if you have love one to another. If you don't, then they won't know. Paul talked in 1 Corinthians 12 about us being many members but one body in Christ. This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Because Satan hates unity in a church. Because when there's unity in a church, there's focus on the mission. It's not what he wants. 
And so he works against it. This goes back to his devices that we are not to be ignorant of. And problems in our lives and with other people, especially other Christians, they are designed by our enemy to get our mind distracted from the mission, period. And we allow those murmurings and those disputings to consume us way too often. I think the chief sport of many believers is people watching and figuring out what they said and what they did and why they said it and why they did it and how we are offended by it. And the shame of it all is that in spite of God's very clear instructions regarding unity and his prayer for us for unity, despite all of that, we are better at fighting each other than we are fighting our enemies. In fact, we make enemies of each other. And can I admonish you that that is wasted energy? Because the Bible is clear that our enemies are the world, the devil, and our flesh. Those are our enemies, not people. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against princes of darkness. Our enemies aren't people, especially other Christians. Now listen, I'm not telling you that you have to be best friends with everybody in here. And I understand very clearly it's that... Happened, things have happened to me. There are legitimate things that happen that may cause you to lose trust in another Christian or whatever. And I'm not pretending like you can ignore that or that you even should ignore that. Many times you can't and many times you shouldn't. But what I am saying, and I want you to hear me very clearly, what I am saying is that in spite of those situations, you can still do all things without murmurings and disputings. Because that's what the Bible says. So... I mean, I guess you can choose not to do what the Bible says. I just think that's bad, bad choice. So you can do that. You can still put the mission over your feelings. You can maintain unity and not cause problems because when you do mix this up, you're just falling into the devil's hands. So I encourage you not to do that. But in spite of that encouragement, I know that we're not going to be perfect about that. I just know. If the Bible and the history tells us anything, is that our flesh is strong. And with people come problems. They'll always be there. And so we'll always be dealing with them. And problems have to be dealt with. Whether they're legitimate or not. You see, the problem presented in verse 1, this murmuring, it, it could have been a perception by the Grecians. Now, it's very likely that it wasn't the way it's worded. But, but there is room that this was just what the, the, the Grecians saw. That it was something specific to them. You know, by this time in the early church, they were, they were quite diverse. They've been added to and multiplied. And, and the Grecians, these were, they were just Greek-speaking Jews who would have originally lived outside of, of Judea. They had accepted Christ as the Messiah. Like, you know, they would have been in Jerusalem hearing Peter, Peter's preaching and joined with those believers in, in Jerusalem. And, and they thought that their widows were being discriminated against. That they weren't being treated as well as, as the Hebrew widows, those that you know, were from and lived in Jerusalem. So this was an issue of favoritism that they were dealing with. And again, we don't 100% know if it was real or perceived, but, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that it obviously rose to the level that it had to be dealt with. And, and the truth is you just can't ignore problems. Now, not all problems rise to the level of needing to deal with them on a macro level. But unfortunately, some do. So the apostles didn't ignore it. 
They met the problem with priorities, and that brings us to the second point related to problems in the church, and that is a solution of priorities. This, this gets to how you solve it and how you, how you, how you, the solution to dealing with problems because the apostles didn't hide from it. They didn't hide from the problem. They set out to solve it, and they solved it by establishing priorities for the ministry and the ministers. Look at verse 2. And then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, what you learn very quickly in the administration of a church, you know, especially certainly then, but certainly today as well, is there are just multiple things that have to get done. The, the word needs to be preached, prayer for the people and, and prayer for the work needs to be ongoing, the body needs to be cared for. Ministry needs to occur at, at multiple levels. So that means priorities have to be set. Because when you're dealing with a large group of people, one man or five men or 12 men can't do it all. And the apostles began by setting the priorities for themselves. They looked at themselves and said, okay, what is it that we need to do? As the leaders of this, what is it that we need to do? Okay, and so the equivalent in the church today, that's pastors, right? The apostles were leading this early Jewish Jerusalem church. And so the equivalent for the church today would be the pastors. And, and that's honestly, that is where everything starts and stops. Not because we are better than anyone else, we're not but simply because of the authority and the structure that God has set up. God has set up authority and structure within the family, God in the home. There's a clear authority structure there. He's done it in a government. He's done it in the church. And that authority structure is never about value. We're all valued equally in the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 12 is very clear about that. Verses 4 through 6 says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. And so it's never about value. It's, it's, just, it's just about role. And so if you have questions about that, just keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It all points to the same end. It's not about value. It's about role. We can't all have the same role. If we had 700 pastors trying to make decisions, we're going to be in some trouble. You know, getting, getting, getting moving. We'll, we'll just be paralyzed in what we what we couldn't agree on. And, and at the same time, if we had zero pastors with nobody having the authority to make decisions, well, that's a bad situation as well. So the apostles started by figuring out their primary priorities. And it came down very simply to two. They were to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't do anything else. But those were their priorities. And listen, for the pastors of this church, those are our priorities as well. And let me be the first to tell you, that can be very challenging. It can be quite a challenge. Just personally, there are many things and many people that pull for my time and attention. And listen, that is not a complaint at all. Please do not take it as that. This is not a ploy to get you to feel sorry for me. I do not want you to. Don't do that. I'm just explaining the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is I could easily spend 40 plus hours a week doing counseling 
visiting people in the hospital, you know, talking to business vendors. We have you know, business operations that go on, analyzing every detail of our ministry structure and how we could be more efficient. I could view it like a corporation. I could view myself as a CEO of a corporation, and I could attack it like that. The only problem with that is I would spend the entire week and never give myself to the word and prayer. And those have to be my priority. It doesn't mean I never counsel or never visit people in the hospital or never talk to vendors or never analyze our ministry structure. I actually do all of those things. But they have to fit into proper priority. I can't do it all all the time, and neither can all of our, any of our pastors. In fact, the, the truth is, and just a, a moment of transparency and honesty before you, you know, before the church now, I've been convicted this week of how I spend my time in, in these areas. I don't have a problem giving myself to the Word. I study hard. Now, it may not be obvious. It may be painfully unobvious. But I spend a lot of time on my sermons. And I think about and I pray literally over every word I'm going to say and, and how I'm going to say it. Again, I, I, I hope it shows at some level. Um, but I've been convicted that I don't give myself to prayer for leading the body like I should. And it's because there are so many things to do in the course of the week. And, and I have a family at home, and there's, just, there's a lot to cover. And I, I've, I've, I've probably not prioritized that appropriately. And so that will change. I've been convicted. The Lord spoke to me in that this week, and that's going to change. But listen, that's true for all of us. Balancing priorities is key to the success of a church. It's key to the success of your life. Balancing priorities, understanding what it is that has to come first. There's so many things that can consume you individually in the course of a day. But if you never spend time with the Lord, you can get to the end of the day and you've done a lot of really good things, a lot of really important things. The problem is, is you just didn't make time to spend with the Lord. He just didn't have the time to open up his word. He didn't have time to pray. It's not that you were lazy. It's not that you were sleeping 12 hours and, you know, doing nothing. It's not that, no. Man, you were efficient. You got a lot done. He just didn't get the most important thing done. And that's, we we have to be careful of that individually. We have to be careful of that as pastors. You have to be careful of that just as Christians. So, so let me give you an example. And please don't take me wrong on this. I'm going to tread in an area that could step on some toes. But, um, but, but let me say a word about counseling. So for example, we have many, many people in this church. Many, we have five pastors, we have 11 deacons, we have ministry leaders, we have many, many people that are qualified to, to take God's word and open it up and sit down with you and show you what it is that you need to be doing or not doing or, or help you walk in, in, in your life, right? And so, so a lot of people will ask me for counseling, and that's fine. I counsel, I do. I'm, I'm, I talked to someone this morning, we're going to counsel this week. It's a good thing. I, I want to be involved in it. But, but I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear this very clearly. The very best counseling I can, advise, I can give comes through preaching this book every Sunday. It's the best counseling I can give you. Giving the whole counsel of God. 
And if you would listen and be attentive and responsive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart and apply what's being preached, then maybe, I don't know, but maybe fewer counseling appointments would be necessary. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't call for counseling. I'm not saying that, I promise. And I know we all deal with things, and maybe they're not covered on a Sunday morning basis, but, but I promise you many are, because God's good that way. You know, just for example, at the end of last year, I did an entire series on marriage and family issues, titled Family Portraits, 10 Sermons. And the answers to most, or at least many, of the marriage problems or parent-child problems that I see are in those sermons. Because those are the problems I see, and so I put them in there. So just, I want you to just think about it this way. A, a counseling appointment that I lead, maybe, it may not help you, first of all. You have to be willing to hear God's word. You have to be willing to apply it. It may not help you. So let's just start there. I wish it would, but that doesn't always. That doesn't always work. But, but, but let's say it does. Let's say it's great, and it helps that person or that couple, or maybe even a family. But when I give myself to the Word and hear from the Lord, that has the potential to help over 700 people that are in attendance every Sunday. I have to keep the main thing the main thing. And again, please don't take this as a, uh, this is not, I don't, I don't want you feeling sorry for me. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. That's not what this is about. I just want you to understand. I told you this is going to be very instructive, very practical on on how we need to go about church and what's best for everybody, including you and your individual situations. Keeping the main thing the main thing has always been the case. It's always been God's model. If we go back to Moses, we have an example of that in Exodus chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, he comes and visits and he, he looks at him and he sees that he's taking too much responsibility on himself. He was trying to guide the children of Israel through the wilderness experience alone. And listen, think about that. Think about problems. Over two million people in the wilderness, you know, wandering without permanent homes. Yeah, there were problems. There was some counseling that had to happen. And look at what Jethro tells him, Exodus 18, verses 17 and 18. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee. You see, if Moses was going to wear away, then the people were going to wear away because he was the only one helping him through it. It says, For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. And listen to his advice, his advice in the next verse, verse 19. Hearken now unto my voice, and I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. Jethro said, Moses, to ensure that you're leading everyone correctly, you have a duty to spend time with God so that you know that you're getting God's word. And as part of that time with God, you need to be in prayer for the people. Let's look at those words in verse 18 again. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. So he's saying, Moses, your duty is to make sure you spend time with God and receive God's word and then spend time in prayer. It's always been the same. And why? Here is why. We've been leading up to this. It's because of the danger outlined in Acts 6 Two, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And there is a phrase in that sentence that scares me to death. Because if I'm not careful and I don't prioritize correctly, then I am at danger of leaving the word of God. Uh, hear that. 
of leaving the Word of God. And that's the danger of unbalanced priorities, leaving the Word of God. And listen, there are pastors all over this country and all over this world who have left the Word of God. And they are serving tables or spending time handling physical needs of the body. And listen, in some ways I understand why. Because giving yourself to the word and prayer can be draining and it can be tiring and it can be hard work and, and, and Sundays just keep on coming every single week and it can be hard work. But listen, so I can see why, but that is the worst thing to do. There are churches left and right who are leaving the word of God or left it a long time ago. And all they do is preach and live a social gospel. God forbid that we do that here. Listen, what we do in this room on Sunday mornings is serious business. And I put in the work because I don't want to waste an hour of your time. But even more than that, there are roughly, so there's, you know, 750, we're averaging about 715 people, 720 people on Sundays. About 550 are in this room. I do not want to waste 550 hours of God's time because he wants you to hear from him not me he wants you all of you every single person in this room he wants you to hear from him every time God's words opened so I'm going to pr prioritize the right thing so that in the best of my ability you can but you need to do your part you need to listen you need to apply. And then you got to get involved because as pastors, we cannot do it all, which brings us to our third point related to solving problems in the church. And that is we need a sharing of participation. So we'll set the priorities. And not everybody likes the priorities. But if we're all doing it together, we're not going to leave the Word of God. We're going to stay true to God's Word. And we're all going to jump in together. And we're going to get this job done. Go back to verse 3 again, and let's see how this plays out. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So what we have here, as I explained to you earlier, is the first installment of deacons. Now again, the word deacon isn't used here, but it's clear that this is the model established. Our King James translators translate them deacon in 1 Timothy. The deacons are, are necessary in the structure of a church because of our priorities. As pastors, we give ourselves to the word and prayer, but other ministry has to get done, right? People have to be cared for. That has to, that has to happen. So the answer to that conundrum is more leaders and new leaders. That is the answer. Others have to share in the load. And from a church structure standpoint, we have to be able to train and deploy. So we have a model. We have a model of training in the Word. We have personal discipleship, and we have MTT, and we have LFBI. And then we will deploy because we want more ministry to get done. We want more people to be reached. We want the ministry to expand. Listen, the last thing I want to be is selfish. I'm, I'm not threatened by more ministry going on. I think it's great. That's what I want. That's what I desire. And so from a church structure standpoint, we have to understand that. 
And, and we have to be able to have others share in the work. And, and from after the pastors, the next layer is the deacons. And there's multiple layers, but the next layer is deacons. Those are the officers. Bible outlines two officers in the church, pastors and deacons, elders and deacons. And we have them here. We have deacons here. And we have good men that hold that office. And so I understand. So we go through a deacon nomination process every few years. And so we've had people join the church recently. And you may not know who the deacons of this church are. So I want you to know who they are. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you who they are. And I'm going to have them stand. We probably even have their names up here. So when I call your name, I want you to stand up. All right. So I, th I think I know who's not in here, I think. We have Kurt Barr. Where's Kurt? Kurt right here. We have Rex Barr. Kurt's dad, right here. We have Corey Burkaw. Corey's up in the booth. Corey's serving in the booth this morning. We have Brenton Bonanno. Brenton Bonanno's on family vacation. He's not here. We have Doug Burkhart. Doug, Doug's her, just had back surgery. So, so praise the Lord that we're, you're staying in, Doug. Man, we're happy to see you. Uh, Jeff Gibbs. Jeff Gibbs right here. Joel Herman. Joel is the, in the four empty rows. He is with the junior high. Joel leads our extreme junior high ministry, so he's with junior high right now. Uh, Andrew Ireland. Andrew's up in the booth, too. Andrew's serving here. Doug Sammons. Doug's over here with, with the high school class. Rick Selhammer. Rick's right, right over here. Wayne Steed. Wayne's right here. These are your deacons. We have nine of them in here, and then we also have Brenton and Joel. Thank you, guys. Uh, you can be seated. You need to know who they are. Because you can go to them just like you can come to us. They wouldn't be a deacon if we didn't trust them at that level. These are all good, spiritually-minded men who handle the business of the church, and they lead ministries too. They lead worship. They lead life groups. They lead the tech booth. They lead extreme. They have Ignite counselors. They have finance committee members to, to keep us all and do the business of the church so that as pastors, we can have our priorities and give ourselves to the word and prayer. And by the way, just again, in this instructive nature, so I showed you who our deacons are. This fall, we will be doing another round of deacon nominations and deacon installation. So we don't have the dates exact, exactly set as the deacons we're going to meet next Sunday, um, and we're going to set all that up, but probably September time frame, we'll go through a new round of deacon nominations and, and installations. So, so keep listening because I'm going to give you instructions for when we do that, the type of people you're looking for. It's because we cannot entrust that job with just anyone. These have to be men, and they have to be men that are of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom like the ones we have. So they need to have a good testimony amongst the body. They also need to walk in the Spirit and have some wisdom so they know how to apply the Word of God to their life and to the life of others. You see these similar qualifications that Paul outlines in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to read them to you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, and let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For they have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good, for they that have used the office of a deacon well to purchase to themselves to purchase, I'm sorry, ugh, to purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You see, there's a spiritual urgency to these qualifications of these men. And it's interesting. 
because the, res- the, the deacons are responsible for serving tables, right, according to Acts chapter 6. It's the handling of many of the physical things. And what they were handling there was the daily ministration. It was, so, we, you know, we've read about how they had all things common at this time. And it's a different time. We, we don't function exactly this way as they did in that early church in Jerusalem. But, but they were taking care of widows and they would, those that had need, they would share. So there was a daily ministration. They served tables. They passed out food or financial support or whatever it may be. And so it was the physical things that they were handling. And, and that's sort of the model for the deacons. They handle the physical business of the church. But all the qualities are spiritual. They're all spiritual. It doesn't, it doesn't say we need good businessmen. You know, we need the most organized. You don't see that. anywhere in scripture you see spiritual qualifications and that's because every service in the work of the Lord is a spiritual service if you're serving the Lord however it's a spiritual service for the Christian there's to be nothing secular it's all sacred because it's all to be unto the Lord everything first Corinthians 10 31 whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do do all to the glory of God Colossians 3.23, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Whatever it is that you're doing. 1 Peter 4.11 says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth. That God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We even see this in the first deacon that is named in Acts chapter 6, a man named Stephen. Stephen is going to take the center highlight role for the next chapter and a half at the end of chapter six and all throughout chapter seven. But, um, but he was one of the guys in charge of serving tables, in charge of the physical. But look at what the Bible says about him in Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. We even see, well, again, we'll see more about his spirituality in the, in the coming weeks. But he was in charge of serving the tables, but man, he's ministering. He's performing miracles. He was doing the work of an apostle. And that's what the deacons do for us. They do the work of a pastor. They don't have the office, but we entrust them to, to handle what we can't handle. And it's an important role. And so spiritual qualification must be the focus for everyone we put in charge here, for pastors, for deacons, all other ministry leaders. Because ministry is about the word of God and the souls of men. And so we need spiritual people focused on that, even if it's a physical task. See, with the installation of this first set of deacons, this is where the ministry of the apostles is expanded. Now Stephen's doing miracles. And this is such a great illustration. It's such a great model for us. Because others participating in the mission, that is how we really get the job done that God has given us. That's how we give him glory. It's how we get more done for the kingdom. You even see that here in Acts chapter 6. The apostles figured out their roles, so they called the disciples together, and they brought them in the process for nominating deacons who they could then appoint, right? And that is how we do it. When we do it in this fall, we will ask you to look out among you and nominate names, and then as pastors, we will look over those, and we will, nomin- we will select, we will appoint from that group that you send us. And there's a lot of reasons why, like, a name that you might suggest doesn't make it 
as a deacon. It may be them. We may ask them, and they may not be interested. They may not have the time. There may be things that we know that you don't know. There's, just a, there's a lot of reasons why God lays it out this way. So, you know, if, if there's a name that you submit and they don't end up as a deacon, don't think anything about that. It's not ne- even necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with that person necessarily. So, but that's how the Bible lays it out. And then look at the beginning of verse 5. And the saying, what they suggested, please, the whole multitude. See, many people were a part of this because there is a spot for everyone. Now, again, if you're going to lead, you have to be proven. There's a, there's a path. But there's a spot for everyone. The more people involved in the work of the Lord, the better. The more sharing of the load, the better. The more leaders we have, the better, because the more people can be under them to, to, do, the, to do the work. Christianity is not spectator sport. We would all be involved. It's what the church is, a body working together according to the word of God to give God glory. It's not just a group of religious people gathered to enjoy a, you know, a worship service on a Sunday morning. That's not what all church is. It's a group of people. We share the same life. We belong to the same Lord. We have the same mind. We have the same vision. We've been given gifts by the Spirit, and he intends us to function together. To change the world by the power of Christ. That's the work of the church. That's the work of this church. That's what you signed up for when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you linked arms with us in this body. And that's why Satan wants people to murmur. And he wants disputings. And he wants tension. And he wants problems. Because when we're together, we can get the work done. When we're fractured, we can't. And so we're all to do it. We're all to be a part. And I know many people think, man, you know, hold up. I'm, I'm okay with being saved, but I don't know about this participation thing you're talking about. I don't know what I have to offer. And others think, you know, you know my, my faith in Christ, that's kind of a personal thing. I don't want to get too involved with others. I want my relationship with God, but I want to be able to do it my way. Listen, according to Paul, it's just not an option. Going back to 1 Corinthians 12, I mean, if you just keep reading, verses 14 through 20, it says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I'm not in the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Of course not. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. If they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, but yet one body. We're all in this together. So listen, when you aren't sharing in the workload or you're not participating in the mission, then we all suffer. Then this church suffers. If you're not involved, we suffer. If you are a member of First Baptist Church, then you have something to offer that I do not. You can reach people that I cannot. And you can do things that I can't because of our priorities. So we need everyone to participate. That's why Paul emphasizes our oneness. And when we all have that biblical mindset and we have our priorities in line, then fourth, we have a sinking of purpose. A sinking of purpose. And a sinking of purpose leads to God's glory and it leads to God's hand on the church. Look at verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. The word of God increased because it wasn't left. And the number of disciples not only multiplied, right? In verse 1, it says that at this point, the number of disciples had multiplied. (coughs) 
excuse me, now it multiplied greatly, including a great company of priests. And that's notable because the priests were part of the group of religious leaders persecuting the apostles. Back in Acts chapter 4, at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, it says, And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold on the next day, for it was now eventide. So the, the priests were part of that group persecuting, and now they're, they're reaching in, and, and the priests are joining the mission. They're breaking into the ranks of the enemies. God is doing an amazing thing. But it comes after the church was back in line together on their purpose. The problem was dealt with, so their focus was back on track. And they were in sync together again. But that will never happen if priorities aren't set. And if no one jumps in and gets spiritual enough to help lead the people and deal with problems. But listen, I do not want you to miss the connection between verse 7 and verse 2. Because, and I'll say it again, the only reason the word of God increased in verse 7 is because the word of God wasn't left in verse 2. The apostles didn't leave the word of God, they doubled down on it. The natural, like the, 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 the murmuring, the complaint was, our widows aren't being cared for. And the apostles, instead of saying what naturally might think, okay, man, let me handle that. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to spend more time in God's word and we're going to spend more time praying. And then we're going to set some others up. And we're going to train them and we're going to deploy them. And they're going to go take care of that. And we're going to double down here. We're going to double down on God's word. And we're going to spend more time in God's word. We're going to spend more time praying. We're not going to leave it. We can't do that. So you can't miss that connection. And that set the stage for God's word being increased throughout the rest of the book of Acts. It's just a continuing cool progression that, that you just see over and over. For example, Acts 12, 24 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied because the right priority was set in chapter 6. Acts 19, 20, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Because the right priority was set in Acts chapter 6. And these guys kept God's word. Jesus said they had already and that they would. John 17, 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men. He's speaking to his father. Which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine, are, thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. And they continued to keep it for the rest of their lives. And that's the key to everything we still do for Christ today. You see, if the word of God is neglected, then it cannot be spread. New leaders can't be built, and the mission won't be accomplished. God won't be glorified. And if we don't keep that focus, we won't be sending people to Albania. We won't be sending people to the uttermost across the world. So, oh, that Acts 6-7 and Acts 12-24 and Acts 19-20 can be said of us. It can be said of First Baptist Church. That the word of God increased, and the word of God prevailed. And disciples are greatly multiplied. But the word of God is the priority. And that it increases, and it increases in the number of people that receive it, and it increases in the application in all of our hearts. And as a result, it increases our unity, and it increases our fruit, and it increases our impact in this community, and it increases our impact around the world. And when all that is increasing, do you know what is decreasing? The murmurings and disputings. 
and Satan's ability to keep the church distracted. And that's what we don't want. We don't want him distracting us. We want to be about the mission. We want the word of God the priority. You see, problems exist, absolutely, and they're going to continue to exist. We cannot deny them. We can't bury our heads in the sand and act like they are not there. But what we can do is double down on our priorities, give ourselves to the word of God and to prayer to continue to train and deploy men, not only in this church but across this state, across this country, and across this world. That's what we can do. So let's do that. Let's double down on those priorities and then bring new people on board to expand the ministry and care for the people so that we can more easily focus on the mission at hand and the purpose that God has given us as a church, to glorify him by making disciples who exalt his word, edify his body, and are equipped to evangelize the world. Let's live to that end. Let's be a part of that. And let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And, and again, as you're settling your heart, I know today was a little bit different, a, a little bit, you know, sort of instructive on, on just processes within a church, administration within a church, and what we do. But I also hope the Lord spoke to you on, on how the priority of our lives and the priority of this church has to be the Word of God, has to be praying to God and, and giving those, make, being dependent upon Him in all that we do. And if, if that hasn't described your life of late, Man, why don't you hear from the Lord this morning, and why don't you change that? Why don't you take the time to, to, to pray to the Lord and repent of how you've been living? I had to do that this week, and so I encourage you to do it too. You have an altar up here. You can make that pew your altar, whatever you need to do. If we have anyone in here that doesn't know the Lord, if, 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 if all that I was talking about today is foreign to you, and there's never come a time that you've placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your sins, and if you were to die today, you don't know where you would spend eternity, man, we can help you get that settled today. We can help you know for sure today uh, how and, and you can place your faith in Jesus and know that you'll spend an eternity in heaven with him. And again, we won't just give you our opinion. We'll open the Bible and show you what God's word says. And if that's you and you have any questions about that, man, if you came with someone, ask them. If, if you don't know who to ask, come forward, find me. I'll be on the front row. There's some of us. Will, 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 you can come talk to any of us. We'd love to open the Bible and show you what it means to be saved today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. And thank you for the model that you give us throughout the Bible. But certainly what we've been seeing in the book of Acts is the the Man, the, the, just the molding, the form of early church there in the beginning of Acts. And, and while it was different then and even had a different message, that kingdom of heaven message, but Lord, there's still, there's still so much we can learn that applies to us today. And so just thank you for that. I pray you continue to work in our hearts to mold us more and more into your image for your glory. Help us to stay focused on your word, to not leave it, to set it as the priority so that we can be about the mission and not get caught up in the other distractions of this world. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.